It was about 10 years ago that I received word that one of the world's foremost fingerstyle guitar players would play a gig in the little town of Joseph, Oregon. When I learned that Chris Proctor was going to be just a couple hours away from where uh, my family lived, I, I jumped at the chance to go and see this man play for the second time, I might add. And so I, I got one of my fellow guitar-playing buddies. I said, we're going to Chris Proctor. And so uh, we got in the car and we left. What you have to understand is when I go to a concert, um, I'm all in. I have to go hours in advance because I want to be in the front row. I want, to, I want to feel the sweat dripping off the guitar player. And so we left LeGrand at about, oh, 1, 2 o'clock in the afternoon. The show's at 7. We take the two-hour journey to Joseph, and, and we got to the theater, and we were the first ones there. It was absolutely incredible. Uh, but there was nothing on the marquee. It was just blank. So I thought, that's kind of weird. Maybe they'll put it up later. And so my buddy and I went and got a, we shared a pizza. And we came back at about, oh, roughly 5 o'clock. And there was still no one there. So it was great. The plan was coming through. And, uh, but it was kind of creeping me out. There's no one there. There's no one in the box office yet. And so we waited and we waited and we waited. Well, at about 6.30, the box office opened, and uh, I asked the lady at the, at the box office, I said, this is the Chris Proctor show, isn't it? I thought maybe we had the wrong town. And she said, yep, absolutely, you're the first ones here. So we paid our money, and we got in, front row. Did I tell you that this is one of the best fingerstyle guitar players in the world? There were like 18 people there. It was like seeing Chris Proctor in my living room. I'll never forget it. But here's the thought I had. What is wrong with people? <laughs> Did I tell you that this is one of the best fingerstyle guitar players in the whole world? Yet, about 20 people show up to see him. Why do I share this story with you? Because if, if you miss out on Friday evening at the Good Friday service, you're going to miss it. You are going to miss it. When I come to a Good Friday service, whether it's here or in previous churches that I pastored, and I see a handful of people show up, I feel very similar to what I felt like when only 20 or so people came to see Chris Proctor. Only it's more intense. This is not a concert. This is the day when we remember the death of our Lord Jesus Christ. In the years since we have been at Christ Fellowship, I have fond memories of Good Friday services. My friend Jason Scheib and the worship team put a, a package of, of songs together that will encourage you, that will bless you. And wouldn't it be a neat thing if everyone that was here this morning came on Friday? And if you all had a chance to bring a friend or a relative, let's pack this place out to the glory of God and then come back on Sunday for the party. Because we're going to celebrate the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Will you pray with me? Father, thank you for what this week represents. Uh, as we move into this Easter week, we anticipate, uh, especially on, on Friday, to remember the, the death and the burial of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. But even greater than that, we uh, look forward, we anticipate the day when we will come as the body of Christ and celebrate his resurrection. 
So thank you for the victory that we enjoy in Christ because of his death, burial, and resurrection. We celebrate that now. We celebrate it all through the year. But in a formal way, we look forward to doing that next week. So now as we open your word, I pray that as we come back to the Gospel of John, that your spirit would do good things in the hearts of your people. That if there's anyone here that has yet to uh, repent of his or her sin, that perhaps today would be the day of salvation. I pray that you'd grow your people deeply in the soil of your grace, all so that you would receive the glory. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, the crowd was pressing in to see the man from Nazareth. And of course, his name was Jesus Christ. So when the the large Jewish crowd heard that Jesus was in the town of Bethany, they drew closer not only to get a glimpse of Jesus, but perhaps even touch the hem of his garment. They were also excited to get a look at the man that he had just recently raised from the dead. And that man was Lazarus, if you remember the last time we were in the Gospel of John. The context leading up to the passage that we will start in today is very important as we find a a growing excitement that exists among the crowd. But there's not only a growing excitement with the crowd, there is a growing hostility among the religious leaders. John chapter 12 says it like this. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him... Many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. Well, the title of the message this morning is Behold the Coming King. And I want to invite you to turn with me to the Gospel of John as we once again um, enter back into this study in the Gospel of John. I believe this is the 42nd message in this series. It's been over uh, 22 or 23 weeks since we last looked at the Gospel of John. And Lord willing, we will take the next several months and complete the Gospel of John. Would you stand with me as we read our passage in John chapter 12, beginning in verse 12. This is the word of the Lord. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion! Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. The question I have for you to consider this morning is, Along with the crowd who was there on that day as Jesus made his way into Jerusalem, how shall we respond to this coming king? How does this king expose the inner workings of my heart? How does the coming king expose the the inner workings of your heart? In John chapter 12, 
verses 12 through 26, and we will look at that two weeks from today as we move toward the latter portion of this unit of thought, we see the responses of three groups of people. First, we see the response of the large crowd, and we will see in a moment that it indeed was a very large crowd. Then we will see the response of the disciples, the inner circle, those who had been following the Lord Jesus Christ. And then finally, there is a group we know as the Pharisees. And two weeks from today, we will look at the response of the Pharisees. But for our purposes today, I want you to look at the responses of both the crowd and of the disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. First, notice with me the response of the crowd. Verses 12 and 13. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they They took branches of palm trees and they went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. I want you to see some important background information on this crowd this morning. I want you to remember that the situation that we are about to study is a situation that is absolutely dripping with tension. This setting where the crowd comes to see Jesus and also get a look at Lazarus, the man that Jesus had raised from the dead, is filled, is dripping, is drenched with tension. You remember the friends of Lazarus stood in the shadow of death as he breathed his last breath. But Jesus offered hope in those days to his grieving friends. He made two affirmations. He said, first, I am the resurrection. I am the resurrection. That is to say, the second member of the Godhead, Jesus Christ, has the power over death. Jesus Christ has the power to raise the dead. And the crowd actually, the people who were there at the time, I should say, actually saw Jesus of Nazareth raise the man who moments before had heard these words. He stinketh. He stinketh. But Jesus raised him to life He not only said to them, I am the resurrection, he said, I am the life. That is to say that God alone is both the giver of life and the sustainer of life. This life is abundant life. This life is victorious life. This life is eternally satisfying. Indeed, this is eternal life. There in the shadow of death, Jesus offered hope for every sinner who was lost in spiritual darkness. And such a hope revealed the very heart of God. And so Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, giving evidence of his divine prerogative. That is to say, Jesus was not in the habit of going around raising all the dead people to life. He chose Lazarus. He had and still has the divine prerogative. And this also gives evidence to the fact of his deity, to the fact that this is God in the flesh. 
you'll remember that many who saw this miracle, and I think you would agree with me that this is an impressive miracle. There were many who saw this miracle, believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, but as they believed, the the Pharisees got increasingly more nervous. And at the end of chapter 11 in John's Gospel, we find the Pharisees cooking up plans to arrest the Lord Jesus Christ. And their ultimate aim is not to take him to a holding cell. Their ultimate aim is not to merely interrogate him. Their ultimate aim is to brutally murder him. Their intention is to put the man from Nazareth to death. Now moving forward to John chapter 12, the story continues to escalate. The tension continues to get more intense. We find the crowd pressing in once again, not only to see Jesus, but to see the man who moments before had been dead, Lazarus. And so we have this this absolutely tension-filled scene. A scene that includes both the devoted and the devious. People who marvel at Jesus and people who are dead set on murdering the man from Nazareth. I want you to bear in mind that as Jesus moves into the city of Jerusalem, that in the first century there were, according to historians and scholars, roughly 100,000 people who lived in the city of Jerusalem, probably a little bit bigger than the city of Bellingham. And I want you to imagine this in your mind, to have uh, a town about the size of, or at least a population about the size of Bellingham. Jesus walks into Jerusalem, but with the influx of pilgrims and onlookers and what you might call rubberneckers in our culture. With the influx of all these people in the crowd, the number grew from 100,000 to around one million. From 100,000 to 1 million. I don't know how, how to categorize that. I don't know how to get that through my head and yours, except with a baseball analogy. If you go to Safeco Field, that holds approximately 47,500 people, it would take 21 Safeco fields filled to capacity to line the streets of Jerusalem. This is a lot of people that line this small city. And so can you, can you sense what's happening in Jerusalem? Can you feel the tension among, between the followers of Jesus and the envious Pharisees? Now, with some of this background in mind, I want you to notice four specific responses from the crowd. It's what I like to call their dependent faith, the dependent faith of the crowd. And the first of four things is this. We notice that the crowd acknowledges their king. We see this in verses 12 and 13. As they have come to celebrate the Passover, they had also heard that Jesus of Nazareth Nazareth was coming into the city, and they come to acknowledge the king. For indeed, this was the son of David. 
This scene reminded me of a scene that unfolded in the Gospel of Matthew when Peter experienced a crisis of faith. You'll remember that in Matthew chapter 14, in the boat, the disciples ended up worshiping him, saying, quote, Truly, you are the Son of God. I see that same thing happening here as the crowd looks on to the man from Nazareth. I see a large crowd ready to greet their king. They greet the king in a very interesting way. They, they pick up palm branches and they display them before Jesus. They lay them at his feet. And the palm branch, you see, was a symbol in Jewish culture of peace and victory and celebration. And so this is a festive moment, even though it's still filled with tension. This is a part of the celebration of the Feast of Tabernacles that you can learn about in Leviticus chapter 23. And the crowd utilizes the palm branches here in this particular story as a symbol of joy. And so imagine this scene as, as the crowd, upwards of a million people, are, are tossing palm branches on the ground, celebrating the arrival of their king. Indeed, they acknowledged their king. But I want you to see the second response. I want you to see that they admitted their need before the king. They not only acknowledged that he was there, they admitted, we need help. And here's how they did it. They admitted, like most people do, they admitted their need with their lips. Look what happens in verse 13. So they took the, the branches of palm trees and they went out to meet him and mark this phrase, crying out. They admitted their need to the king of Israel by crying out. And this is a very interesting word that comes from a, a little Greek word. And here's what it means. And I think this will give you a flavor of what's happening. It doesn't just mean, hi, Jesus, we're really happy to see you. It means this, to shout out. Now everyone's awake. The word that comes from the Greek means to shout or literally scream. In the Old Testament, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament called the Septuagint, we have the same word emerging in Judges chapter 3, verse 9, when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. The Lord raised up a deliverer for the people of Israel. The word also emerges in Psalm 22, 5. To you they cried and were rescued. You see, they admitted their need. In you they trusted and they were not put to shame. Once again, the, the word occurs in Psalm chapter 34, verse 17. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord delivers them from all their troubles. Once again, the admission of need. And then in the parallel passage in Mark chapter 11, in the synoptics, we read, And those who went before and those who followed were, and it's interesting how Mark translates this, they shouted, they shouted, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They not only shout, they not only cry out, Lord, help us. They cry out with 
the word, the Jewish word, Hosanna, which is the word that means save us, an exclamation of of praise that implies, Jesus, you are the king. Jesus, we need you to come save us. We pray, O Lord, that you would help us and give us success. That is the meaning of Psalm 118.25 that says, Save us, we pray, O Lord. We pray, give us success. And so the crowd acknowledges Jesus. They admit their need to Jesus. Third, I want you to see in verse 13 that they actually applauded their king. Once again, they cry out, they shout out, they scream, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That word blessed means to give praise. It means to thank. It means to speak well of someone. It means to extol a person. And so that's what's happening as the crowd, the upwards of a million people, are applauding their king, the king of Israel. In Luke chapter 1, verse 64, we read, And immediately John the Baptist's mouth was open, and his tongue was loose, and he spoke, blessing God. He's thanking God. He's praising God. He's worshiping God. In Luke 24, 52 and 53, they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple, blessing God. First Chronicles 29, verse 20. David says to the assembly, bless the Lord your God. And all the assembly blessed the Lord, the God of their fathers, and bowed their heads and paid homage to the Lord their God. You see, what the crowd is doing as they applaud their king is they're giving homage to their king. That is to say, they are engaged in an act of worship. And while the scene was, was surely a, 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 a confused scene for some and a, a, a celebratory scene for others, one thing remains certain. There was a party in Jerusalem this day, and the crowd was worshiping their king. Finally, I want you to see that the crowd, most importantly, adhered to his authority. The crowd not only acknowledges Jesus and admit their need, they applaud him, but they also adhered to his authority. It was a few weeks ago, you may remember the words of John Frame, who said, the central message of Scripture is that God is the Lord. And so to adhere to the authority of the king is to to cling to him. To adhere to the authority of the king is to submit to him. To adhere to the authority of the king is to obey him and to submit to his authority. John MacArthur says it like this. Implicit obedience to his commandments, that is Jesus' commandments, is necessary, expected, and the natural fruit of genuine love for him. MacArthur continues, a true believer, listen to this, a true believer cannot remain rebellious or even indifferent. Genuine faith will inevitably provoke some degree of obedience. Here's what MacArthur's trying to share. If you are here this morning, you claim to be a follower of Christ and you don't obey Christ, 
You're not a Christian. If you're here this morning and you say, I follow Jesus, but you refuse to submit to him, you're not a Christian. You say, but pastor, I, I, I prayed a prayer. Pastor, I, I, I filled out the, the card and I put it in the offering bag. Or, Pastor, I, I gave my testimony as I was, I was baptized. Or, Pastor, I, I worked at Camp Gilead. Or, I worked in Awana. Or, I was a Sunday school teacher. If you refuse to adhere to the authority of the king, you are not a subject of that king. Now, no doubt in a crowd of upwards of a million people. We can assume that there were some false professors. We can assume in a a crowd that large that some were giving lip service, that they were looking like they were acknowledging their king. They were looking like they were admitting their need. They, They gave lip service to a group that applauded their king. They said all the right things. They could even shout out, Hosanna, blessed Be the name of the Lord. You are the true king of Israel. And while they said the right things and looked the right way, some people were going through the motions, no doubt. And the local church is no different in our day. Some of you are here to worship Jesus, and we encourage you to worship the living God in spirit and in truth. But in a crowd of this size... No doubt there are some who are merely going through the motions. I come to church because good Christians go to church, especially in Whatcom County. This morning, I want to encourage you to do something very important. I want you to dig deep. I want to encourage you to to be honest with yourself and honest with God. I want you to ask the Holy Spirit to probe your heart. And allow the spotlight of the Holy Spirit to to shine His light on your life and ask Him to do a very special work of grace. I will put it this way, that you would ask the Holy Spirit to do an internal audit of your heart. Here's the thing I've learned over the years. No one likes to be audited. No one likes it when the IRS calls and says, we're going to do an audit next week. No one likes it when the IRS calls and says, we're coming to your place of business to do an audit. What a pain in the neck. Now, spiritually speaking, I think we're very similar. It's very uncomfortable to to ask the Holy Spirit to do an internal audit of your heart. Let me lead you through that process. I want you to ask and allow the Holy Spirit to pinpoint sin in your life this morning. First, are you acknowledging your king this morning? Like the crowd in the first century acknowledged their king, I ask you, are you acknowledging your king? And obviously it took a certain amount of initiative for the crowd to to gather around Jesus. These are people who had who had jobs, who had a a way of life, who had things they were involved with. They just didn't show up in Jerusalem automatically. They had to be proactive. One way you can acknowledge the Lord Jesus Christ is by regular church attendance. By regular church attendance. And I know this is a, in our culture, this is a touchy, touchy subject. I grew up in a home where we never miss church. And as a result, Doreen and I in our home, um, you can ask uh, my son and daughter, we just don't miss church. 
And so on, on the rare days that we may take a vacation and we say, yeah, we're just going to, we're going to hang out at the hotel and swim. I remember the first time that happened. You remember that, Jerrine? Abby goes, whoa, 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 hold on. Stop everything. We're not going to church. Hold the boat. And Nathan's the same way. Whoa, whoa. What's the deal? What a rip. It's Sunday. We go to church. And where did they learn that? They learned that from a, a family legacy that teaches on Sunday, this is what we do as a family. We go to church and worship the living God. Now we know this. We know that going to church does not make a person a Christian. But it is also true that faithful church attendance is an important aspect of discipleship. I ran across an article not too many days ago that reads a sample statement on regular church attendance. And there's six statements that I think you'll find fascinating. The author says, number one, faithful attenders confirm the power of the gospel and support evangelism, whereas non-attenders make evangelism harder. Number two, faithful attenders confirm Christ-centered lives for new believers, while non-attenders confuse them. It's like my kids. What's, what's the deal? Why don't our friends ever come to church? Number three, faithful attenders encourage other regular attenders, whereas non-attenders discourage them. Number four, faithful attenders comfort their leaders by their adherence to the truth, while non-attenders worry them. Number five, faithful attenders will show steady growth in respect to their salvation, whereas non-attenders will not. What is the author trying to say? It's a pretty brutal reality. He says, don't come to church, don't grow. Don't come to church, you will fail to grow in grace. And finally, the author says, faithful attenders will be helped to persevere in the faith, whereas non-attenders endanger their souls. One important way of acknowledging the king is by faithful attendance. And I can only imagine what would happen at Christ Fellowship. What would happen if we gathered together and said, here's what we're going to do. We're going to commit to coming to church. And there are moments when certain things come up, and that's certainly understandable. There are vacations, there are sporting events, and things come up. But for the most part, can you imagine what would happen in our church family if we said, this is one way that we will acknowledge the king is we're coming to church. We're excited to come to church. There's a second thing I want to ask you as we allow the Holy Spirit to do this internal audit is, are you admitting your need to the king? Now, the crowd in Jerusalem that day, as you've already read, was very quick to admit their need. The moment they saw the man from Nazareth, they cry out, they shout. Know this, that when you cry out to Jesus, you, you do away with all pretense. When you cry out to Jesus, that pride begins to dissipate. When you cry out to Jesus, he becomes your new focal point. This morning I was reading in Daniel chapter 4, reading about King Nebuchadnezzar. 
and how it was all about him. Look at all that I've done. Look at my buildings. Look at all the things that I've done. I am the man. And God, in so many words, told King Nebuchadnezzar, no, no, you're not the man. I am the sovereign one, and you're the creature, and he sent him out to pasture. Number three, do you applaud your king as we allow the Holy Spirit to do an eternal audit? The crowd screamed out. They screamed out. They didn't care what the onlookers were thinking. And the way I think we apply that to our context is you you want to raise your hands in worship and you say, but old, old Joe Schmo behind me is going to see me raising my hands. What, he, what is he going to think? You notice they didn't care. They're screaming. They're yelling, Hosanna! Blessed be the name of the Lord. He is the God. He is the sovereign one of Israel. When you applaud your king, once again, you you put the spotlight on him and you move towards being God-centered instead of being man-centered. Finally, do you adhere to the authority of the king? Have you confessed with the crowd in Jerusalem that Jesus indeed is the king of Israel? And really, when it comes down to it, there are only two positions. He is either your king or he is your enemy. So this morning, it's, it's pick your poison. Jesus is my king, or Jesus is my enemy. And so many Americans say they want to do this. They want to straddle that fence. And they say, he's not my king, and he's not my enemy. I'm, I'm, I'm a carnal Christian. No, you're not a carnal Christian. You're not a Christian. Jesus is your king, or Jesus is your enemy. I want to do something we don't do an awful lot here at Christ Fellowship, but I want to take a moment. I want to have you bow your heads. And I want to have you, if you have not already begun this process, to allow the Holy Spirit to do an internal audit of your heart and let him dredge up what he needs to dredge up and then present it to your God. God, this morning as a pastor, I am utterly powerless. I have no weight of authority to change the mind of anyone. But we know that your Holy Spirit is omnipotent, that he can break through the most hardened, stony, recalcitrant heart. And I pray that you do that with many people today. I pray that you would... Place us in a position where we have a passion to submit to the authority of the king. And so I pray that, O Holy Spirit, you would do a marvelous work of grace in many lives today. That we would not hear shades of the law, but we would hear shades of grace. And that grace would compel us to serve Jesus, to love Jesus, to obey Jesus, to submit to his authority. Now, as we continue... In this passage, um, will you be with us and point out the truth that we desperately need to hear? In Jesus' name, amen.
Well, we've seen briefly the response of the crowd. I want to now shift your attention and look at the response of the disciples. The response of the disciples. This is interesting. Verse 16. His disciples, remember, these are the guys, these are, these are the cats on the inner circle, right? The disciples now did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. I see two responses here. The first response is what you might call a confused faith. A confused faith. When the Bible says in verse 16 that they did not understand, that comes from a Greek word that means experiential knowledge. They just, they just didn't get it. They just didn't understand. They, they couldn't put the pieces together. Why would their king ride into Jerusalem on a donkey? Where's the war horse? Where's the power? Guys, what's, what's wrong with this picture? I can just imagine the disciples looking at each other going, I have no idea what's going on. What's he doing on the donkey? And what are these people doing? But there's not only a confused faith, but later, later, we see a confident faith emerge in the hearts of the disciples. The confusion turned to a confident faith as they, note in verse 16, they remembered. It's kind of like, I could have had a V8, right? They remembered that these things have been written about him and have been done to him. Now, this is in the future. This didn't happen the day that Jesus rode into Jerusalem. But there's a clue in John chapter 12, verse 23, that we will look at in weeks to come. Jesus says, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. I think the disciples heard that and started to scratch their heads. I'm sure there are disciples that started to begin the, to put the pieces together. Later in John 17, when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted his eyes to heaven. And he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Now, this section also causes us to dig deep and to ask questions about our faith. And the question I have for you is the same as the disciples. Is your faith a, a confused faith? Are you, are you struggling to put the pieces together? Are you battling unbelief? Are you wrestling with believing the promises of God? Or, or is your faith confident? And here's what I'm convinced of, that there is a, a razor-fine line between confused faith and confident faith. You may be beaten down, you may be worn out, you may feel like dropping out of the race, but it is in those moments, it is in those moments that you recall the great promises of God. That his grace is sufficient for you. That his power is made perfect in weakness. That the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. This morning we've seen the, the response of the crowd. We've seen the response of Jesus' disciples. But I want to close by having you look at one final main pillar. And that is the reason Christ came to Jerusalem. And there are three very important reasons. The first is this, 
And it's found in Mark chapter 10. I'd have you turn there with me to Mark chapter 10 and look with me at verse 32 through 34. The first of three reasons that Jesus rode into Jerusalem on that day is found in this passage. And verse 32 says that while they are on the road going up to Jerusalem, Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed. And those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him, and after three days he will rise. I want you to imagine that you're numbered among the disciples. That Jesus says, listen guys, the reason I am going to ride into Jerusalem is that I must die. That I must die. And I can only imagine what the disciples were thinking with tears welling up in their eyes. No! No! That's not supposed to happen. No! But Jesus came to die. I want you to see that his death was a, a sacrificial death. Mark 10.45 says that even as the Son of Man came not to serve, but to serve and give His life as a ransom for many. His death was not only a sacrificial death. Please understand that His death was a voluntary death. It was a voluntary death. The very notion that Jesus rode into Jerusalem reveals that he came to die voluntarily. No one was twisting the arm of the man from Nazareth. One commentator says this, he is forcing the issue. I love that. He deliberately plans a demonstration, fully realizing that as a result, the enthusiasm of the masses will enrage the hostile leaders at Jerusalem to such a degree they will desire more intensely than ever to carry out their plot against him. John Calvin adds, We ought to remember Christ's design, which was that he came to Jerusalem of his own accord to offer himself to die, for it was necessary that his death should be voluntary because of the, the wrath of God could be appeased only as a sacrifice of obedience. The first reason that Jesus rode into Jerusalem on that donkey was because he came to die. The second reason he rode into Jerusalem was to fulfill prophecy and to proclaim himself as the Messiah. If you would turn with me to the Old Testament, near the end of the Old Testament, to Zechariah chapter 9. I'll give you just a, a second or so to find that. Towards the end of the Old Testament, Zechariah chapter 9. Because I think it would be important for your eye gate to see these words. Zechariah 9 verse 9. Here's what the Bible states. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous 
and having salvation is he humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Turn back with me to John chapter 12. Look at verse 14. Notice what happens. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, you might write in your Bible, Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. As I was studying this passage, something struck me that's never struck me before. With upwards of a million people, there were people at all levels of faith and unbelief. And there were no doubt people there. And for some reason, I imagine a, 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 a child or a preteen or a teen pulling on the hem of their daddy or their mommy, saying, it gives me the shivers to think about it. Mommy, daddy, do you remember when we read Zechariah 9-9? Look, it's, it's the Messiah. This is what the Old Testament said would happen. He's riding to the streets of Jerusalem. The second reason Jesus came was to fulfill prophecy, and he fulfilled it in this very moment, and as a result, presented himself publicly as the Messiah. The third reason, and oh, what a reason it is, that Jesus came into the streets of Jerusalem, is he came to be the Passover lamb. You know, it must have been quite a sight as Jesus made his way into the city with the the amazing throng of people, people who had not only come to see Jesus and hopefully get a glimpse of Lazarus, but these people were in Jerusalem to celebrate, as verse 12 tells us, the feast or the festival. That is to say, they were there to celebrate the Passover. And it must have been quite a scene as Jesus enters the streets of Jerusalem as he is surrounded by Tons of lambs. There are lambs everywhere, and every one of these lambs will be sacrificed. Four days later, to be exact, these lambs would be slaughtered. But more important than these many lambs who would be slaughtered, Jesus Christ is also slaughtered on Calvary's tree. In Exodus chapter 12, just to review quickly with you, we read about the story of the Passover, where the Israelites received some very specific and concrete instructions from God. In Exodus 12, verse 5, Israel is told, Select a lamb, and see if you can put the pieces together. Select a lamb without blemish. And you are to kill the lamb at twilight on the 14th day of the month. And then Israel was instructed to take some of the wood and put it on the two doorposts on the lintel of the houses in which they are to eat. And you shall eat it in haste. Why? It is the Lord's Passover. And here's what Scripture says. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike down the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. Can you imagine being a Jewish person and hearing those words? 
quick. Benjamin, get a lamb. Get the lamb now. And we will do as the living God has instructed. And then we read these words in Exodus chapter 12, verse 13. And I hope if, if you haven't put the pieces together by now, it'll all come together for you. Exodus twelve thirteen says, The blood, that is the blood from the lamb, the spotless lamb, foreshadowing the spotless lamb who would die for the sins of the world. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Listen, this morning, Jesus Christ is the ultimate Passover lamb. And just as the angel of death passed over every faithful Israelite who placed the blood of the lamb on the doorpost, so too, listen, so too will God and his judgment pass over you if he sees the blood of the lamb displayed on your heart. So too will God pass over every person who places trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, the ultimate Passover lamb. And so once again, how shall we respond to the coming king? Followers of Christ acknowledge the king. They admit their need. They applaud him. And they adhere to his authority. In short, the truth point is this. Followers of Christ marvel at the coming king. They marvel at the coming king. Two weeks from today, we will see the response of the Pharisees. And I think we all know that the Pharisees did not marvel at the coming king. What did they do? They murdered the coming king. And so this morning, you're placed in a position where... You must be challenged with this question. What is your response? Not your, your husband, not your wife, not your children, not your aunt, your uncle or grandpa or grandma. What is, what is your response to the coming king? And you need to know this, that Jesus entered the streets of Jerusalem on that lowly donkey to fulfill what was written in Zechariah chapter 9. But when Jesus returns for his church... There will be no more donkeys. There will be no more donkeys. When Jesus returns for his church, he will come on a white horse. The book of Revelation describes that unbelievable scene. Then I saw heaven open and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called faithful and true. In righteousness, he judges and makes war. His eyes are like flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and in that name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has his name written. It's a tattoo. King of kings. 
and Lord of Lords. Behold the coming King. I want to ask you this morning, where do you stand with the King of Kings? Where do you stand with the King of Kings? When Jesus returns in judgment, will he see that you are a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ? Will he see that his blood is plastered all over your heart because you have banked all your hope and future exclusively in him? Or will he see unbelief? Or will he see a stony heart? Or will he see rebellion? For every person who fails to adhere to the authority of the king, for every person who fails to submit to the king, they will be judged for their sin forever and ever and ever. This morning, where do you stand before this coming king? Let's pray. Father, what an amazing sight it must have been in Jerusalem that day as you fulfilled prophecy by riding in on this beast of burden, uh, giving evidence of your uh, messianic mission, coming to die, coming as the ultimate Passover lamb. Once again, God, I, I can only think of the, the children and the young people and the men and the women who began to put the pieces together. They realized that redemptive history was unfolding right before their eyes. And, of course, there were many, even the disciples, who just didn't get it. God, I pray that we get it today as we have a, a more clearer view, a better view in the pages of Scripture. God, I pray that our hearts would cry out in saving faith and belief that we would be satisfied with all that God is for us in Christ. God, for Christians, I pray that uh, each Christ follower here would marvel, would be astonished, would be blown away at the coming King. For those who have yet to follow Jesus, I pray that today would be the day of salvation, that they would give up their rebellion, that they would give up their unbelief, that the fact that Jesus will return on that war horse that's described in the book of Revelation would bring them to the point of saying, God, I acknowledge that I am a sinner, and I turn from my sin, and I believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation in him and him alone. First in his name we pray. Amen. It's marvel. They marvel. They're astonished. They're blown away at the coming king. What's it look like? I want to come full circle today and go back with the scripture that, that Ken shared with us in the call to worship. Here's what it looks like. One thing I have asked of the Lord that I will seek after that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and inquire in his temple. That means when you prepare to come to church in the morning, it's not, I've got to go to church again. It's, we're going to inquire in the temple, baby. We're going to worship the king. You see, if, if the Christian faith is boring... There's a lot of other things to do in this world. But I can assure you, it is not boring. Jesus, the God-man, 
seated at the right hand of the Father, ruling and reigning now. He loves his people. My question is, are you in love with him? Are you marveling at him? Are you astonished at him? When you open your word, are you, are you blown away? May God do that work of grace with each of us this morning. Let's pray. Father, may we uh, marvel in your grace. May we marvel in your power. May we marvel in your mercy. May we marvel at the gospel. God, thank you for the plan that you put together in eternity past so that we could be a people for your own possession, so that we would have a people who have the ability to marvel, a proclivity to marvel, a desire to marvel, to worship you, the great God of the universe. God, I'm convinced that we have so much to learn as a church family. We have not only so much to learn, we have so much to do. We are excited about uh, the future as it unfolds. I pray that this time next year that more and more people at Christ Fellowship would be marveling. I pray that next year this time there will be people in this community who are not here today that would be marveling at Jesus Christ. God, there may be someone drunk right now. There may be someone strung out on drugs right now. There may be a a husband beating his wife. There may be be a, a man beating his children. There may be someone robbing a bank or breaking the law next year this time. By your grace, they'll be marveling in Jesus. Thanks for the chance to be a part of it. Help us to be faithful in the meantime. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.